Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 10. This episode features my conversation with Vince Miller of the University of Dayton. Uh, this was a particularly special episode for me because Vince was one of my professors when I was an undergraduate at Georgetown. And his work, especially in the book Consuming Religion, has continued to be a big influence on my own research. So it was really great to get to talk to him and, and learn about his backstory. Uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about globalization in theology. And Vince talks about his sort of new hook for the book that he's working on, where he takes solidarity as both a diagnostic lens and a prescription for thinking about globalization. We also talk about how growing up in Pittsburgh during the implosion of the U.S. steel industry shaped his theology, the fragmentation and subtlety of the zeitgeists, and Vince's defense of the song Kumbaya. As always, please leave your comments uh, on the blog or on iTunes, and thank you very, very much for listening. So we're here today at the Daily Theology Podcast with Professor Vince Miller of the University of Dayton, who's the Gudorf Chair of Catholic Theology and Culture. Vince, thanks for being here. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. The first question that we like to talk about on the podcast is... Kind of basically, how did you come to be a theologian? What was it that interested you or drew you in or convinced you this was not a terrible path for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And those are always wound into a lot of our life story. So I was always a religious kid. I got that from my environment. I remember, you know, I, I cared about the Eucharist and I cared about church. I remember distinctly in seventh grade, we had a deacon who was doing CCD for us, and uh, it was an interesting parish. There were only like four of us left at that point in CCD, and he would come in, and he had this book that was, it was a large book. It was bound in gray linen and had burgundy writing on the <laughs> spine, and we'd talk about all kinds of interesting things. We'd talk about evolution. We'd talk about cosmology and the Big Bang. Uh, we talked about, we were very interested, um, and you know we were not a particularly intellectual a group of kids from a particularly intellectual <laughs> part of the world. And I remember distinctly at that time, earlier than that, I would hear about theologians in homilies, mm-hmm. right? And I, and I you know, very clearly distinguished from the scriptures and from doctrine. But, you know, theologians are, are asking these sorts of questions, and theologians are doing this. And it was an exhilarating year, but about halfway through it, uh, he came in crestfallen, and he said the, the pastor told me that as far as he was concerned, I could burn that book. And I was not to teach you from it anymore. And so we went back to the, uh, the paperbacks with the uh, felt butterflies in them. Mm-hmm. Um, years later at Notre Dame, when I was researching, uh, this is the first semester I was there for my MA, researching some paper in the, in the reference section, um, I looked up and I saw that there were seven volumes of that book, and it was, in fact, Sacramentum Mundi. He was teaching, huh. us, out, teaching us out of in seventh grade. Wow. I, I, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid not the most profound science fiction, but I was always struck by, there was this, this, this leap. It seemed like most of them picked up at least 50 years from now, if not 500. Mm-hmm. And there were all sorts of things on the horizon in terms of nuclear weapons, in terms of environmental crises of a variety of sorts. And I was always impressed. It sort of built into me that they didn't really face those questions. They just assumed they were handled, and they picked up in some mm-hmm. sort of either dystopic or utopian future uh, and then did some sort of uh, space opera. <laughs> and I had the sense, you know, that, that theologians engage these issues, right? Uh, you know, I really had, was given this post-Vatican II sense of a church that was not afraid to engage the world, a mm. church that could confidently engage, you know, evolutionary biology. It could confidently engage Darwin and have something to say, mm-hmm. right? And, and it, 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 it understood the distinctions it would make. It understood on, on conditions that could accept these things. It understood the sorts of questions and critiques it would level. And that was just a beautiful, fantastic thing. That disappeared, you know, in, in my 20s. I, that, that, that church went away. Mm. You know, I went away to a place called, uh, it was then St. Francis College, now St. Francis University. There I was exposed to Francis of Assisi, and that really built upon the, the, the nature imagination and, and, and awe that I had as a child that I probably got a lot from reading Tolkien repeatedly and walking in the woods a lot to deal with <laughs> adolescence. And those two connected together very well. And, you know, the, 
with Francis, there were so many things. There was, you know, there was that effective relationship to God that really brought into clear focus you know, the, the shortcomings of society, but also the ability to, to walk outside of that and, and, and act in love in a way that really ran counter to the limits, the social limits that were all around us. Some good professors and spiritual directors gave me Dorothy Day, gave me Thomas Merton, Raids on the Unspeakable, the opening essay, Rain and the Rhinoceros, of pretty much everything I've said since then is basically a reprise of that. <laughs> um, that. That's not really actually a joke. <laughs> you can go read it and you'll see. Much more poetic than consuming religion. Huh. I was an engineering major. Really? Uh, yes. And for some reason, wisdom that I, that I apparently had at 17 that I don't know where I got, and I sort of admire that 17-year-old me because he made a really good decision. Uh, St. <laughs> Francis had a 3-2 program where you would get a BA at St. Francis, a full BA, mm-hmm. and then you'd leave the last two years, go to Penn State, and, and get a BS in engineering. So, okay. And for some reason, this, this appealed to me greatly. This looked like I could, I could be an engineer and have college, too. Um, and I'm so thankful I made that decision. Um, was the, just out of curiosity, was the engineering, was that genuine curiosity about engineering? Was mm-hmm. that just practical, I need a job? Was that, like, what was... What was it that drew you to that? Well, yeah, the other half of my childhood was tinkering with things. And, okay. you know, my grandfather taught me electronics, and I would build circuits or at least plan to build circuits and robots. And <laughs> it, it, I envy my children because back then you had to find someone with a machine shop to help mm-hmm. you, which was sort of hard at 14. <laughs> uh, uh, but I did find someone. A gunsmith actually made some parts for me. So, I, yeah, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer, and I mm-hmm. love that. Uh, and I so at St. Francis I did the, the basic you know, first two-year engineering courses with physics and dynamics and statics and, and, and did the other sciences, uh, all of which I loved greatly. But it was a course, my sophomore year, an honors course. Uh, they brought in um, Monsignor Charles Owens Rice, Owen Rice, uh, who was the, the labor priest in Pittsburgh. He was um, the uh, chaplain to the AFL-CIO. And he had been very involved, actually, in the, in the anti-communist battles in the unions in, mm-hmm. in the mid-20th century, uh, something that he would later apologize for the extremity that he went to. Mm. But, you know, talking to him, I just got a whole different view of the world that, that helped me understand something that was also going on in the background as, as I was graduating from high school, my high school years. 80,000 steel workers lost their jobs in Pittsburgh. An entire yeah. way of life was, was eliminated. And uh, I f- around me, my friends, you know, families economic circumstances changed profoundly. Uh, when I was in grade school, I, I, I simply did not know that there was a difference between working class and middle class. I thought those were synonyms. Yeah. You know, working class people had boats and they had cabins in the woods and they went away for two weeks in the summertime. And I, I didn't realize that we were not middle class. We were working class. We did not have a boat uh, or, or a cabin in the woods. But people around us did. And in so many people's lives, so many families' lives and the possibilities of peers in, in high school changed radically, right? Mm-hmm. People who were very, very bright, uh, who did much better than I did in school, you know, suddenly found themselves scrambling to be able to go to any college, right? Mm-hmm. You know, let alone the one that a valedictorian probably should be going to. Sure. Um, to see these life conditions change and not know what to do about it, right? It was simply done through pink slips. And, and so taking this course with Monsignor Rice, he really opened my eyes to the way that late industrial capitalism was working. He, he, he had been involved in those battles to achieve the, 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 the level of flourishing that, that people had had and mm-hmm. that I had saw being taken away, you know, and, and he was able to tell us the history of that. Uh, and also, like, uh, you know, he would sit up there, he, he remember he telling us he had a hiatal hernia, so he could no longer smoke cigars. Um, <laughs> for him. Uh, so he'd sit up there with a, with a cigar in his mouth and he'd sort of chew on it and tell us stories. And it was he was involved, you know, he knew what it felt like to get hit with a axe handle, you know, mm-hmm. during, during a riot. He, he told us how you disrupt a union meeting that's about to be taken over by communists, which was <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> in great detail. So if I ever need to do that, I, I've got, um, you got that in your pocket. Yeah. But what came out of that was the sense that you know, as an engineer, as someone, you know, making technology work for humankind, um, I... I would be working on the behest of a system that probably wasn't primarily interested in human flourishing. Uh-huh. You know, I, mean, I remember thinking at the time that, so I'll be designing better lug nuts, but I'm not, you know, this is not a career that's going to lead towards, you know, major life-changing inventions. Mm-hmm. 
and he, you know, he encouraged that, that suspicion, that alongside of reading Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, and, and being at a Franciscan university, right? These things, this was all percolating mm-hmm. in, in the air. So I had a bit of a crisis and uh, didn't know what to do. I ended up designing my own major in social justice. Uh, hmm. I had enough of the engineering to have minors in math, computer science, and physics, I think, maybe something else by that point. <laughs> and so I, I basically put together a combination of religious studies, economics, political science, social psychology to try to propose this as a comprehensive undergraduate major. Uh, I graduated, and the, uh, the, the job openings in social justice were decidedly limited. <laughs> so I taught high school for a year, and it was... In teaching high school, I taught religion at a Catholic high school. Did you stay in Pittsburgh for that? I went to Weirton, West Virginia. Okay, uh, which is you know very much like Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they at that point still had a functioning mill uh, mm-hmm. that they had done a, an employee buyout on. That's since become a very grim town indeed, as that has failed. But at that time, it was it, it was much like the Pittsburgh that it, I had grown up in as a child, and so I that was an enormous challenge. Uh, it was one of the hardest jobs I ever had. It was, it was a wonderful job. I came in there with a lot of ideas about, you know, just explaining how, you know, what the gospel was, what the Catholic Church taught, and how the world worked. I would just sort of, like, lay these things out, and they would say, oh, okay, and... and, and you were going to be transformative. Yes, just by just by rationally explaining these things to them. <laughs> um, now, I'm probably vastly overestimated my ability to, to rationally explain these things well. <laughs> but what really struck me is, and again, you know, at that point I was 22, and I, and I'm... I remain amazed by how much I learned from that experience, how much they taught me, was there were these deeper stories about the nature of the world that that I couldn't really engage in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And those stories were always down there pre-interpreting anything we engaged, whether it was the gospel or, or, or theology or some critical analysis of the way the world works. And those stories were a fairly anxious story of, of being an individual who has to, you know, middle-class individual who has to get the brass ring somehow, right? They have to find a livelihood that's going to make them reasonably wealthy. In that particular school that year, the, the, the way of being extremely wealthy that they all wanted to be was to be pharmacists. And so they would often, you know, in my social justice zealotry, right, they would, they would some <laughs> you know, like adolescent men would say, I'm going to be a pharmacist, and I'm going to be as rich as hell. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. And the, the, it was an odd sort of conflict. Um, and pharmacy is a very noble profession, and I sure. and I hope I hope they're flourishing in that. It was just it was a strange vision of of, of ultimate success yeah. for everyone to share. And why did that have to be a source of conflict for them? Yeah, well, yeah. I think that was that was, <laughs> that was the, you know I was an adolescent male, and they were adolescent males, and so there was going to be a conflict. We were of, of different age, but. You know, uh, so, but what I really learned there was there were these deeper stories of of, of a relatively anxious need, a real, real strong sense that that they're on their own, mm-hmm. right, and they have to take care of their family, and so any talk about solidarity, any talk about questioning the basic justice of the system, all of that, there was just no room for that because the the pressing need was for them to either gain access or maintain their location in the middle mm-hmm. class, and 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 from that I I, I again. It, sort of admire my ability to do this at that time because I'm not sure I still have it on, a, on, my, be- on my best days was, was unless I could engage those underlying stories right of, of the individual self of the, of the nuclear family that has to take care of itself first and, and will virtually never be able to get around to taking care of others and asking bigger questions because of its anxiety that I would need to go study systematic theology basically to find ways to address those deeper narratives I thought that, okay. I thought that systematic theology would teach me to do that you know, so Christology Trinitarian theology, ecclesiology, these things would be would then provide a, a basis for other stories that, mm-hmm. that I could return to these same people and talk about. And so that's why I decided to go off and, and do graduate study at, at uh, Notre Dame, where I did. And so once I got there, you know, I studied with wonderful people like Tom O'Meara, like Dick McBrien, like Michael Himes, Catherine Lacuna. And... One of the clearest things I got from Notre Dame that I that I really look back and I'm thankful for was from all of them, um, but, but especially from Tom, this real strong, clear sense of responsibility to the church in history, that each generation has its obligation. Each generation of theologian has its obligations. You know, so 
Augustine, Bonaventure, Aquinas, uh, Kungar, Rahner, right? They had all faced the needs of their generation. Mm-hmm. And that responsibility was now on our shoulders. And that we had to find a way to, you know, to engage the contemporary moment. That's what theologians did. It was a, it was a fundamentally ecclesial task that required you to do all sorts of intellectual work. You know, so, so maybe some implicitly correlationist model here that you would find. You would you have to engage contemporary theology or, or some sort of con- contemporary theoretical perspective, mm-hmm. um, but never as an end in itself, right? Never as a purely academic undertaking, but always as an extremely academic undertaking that's always oriented towards service to the church, to speaking to the, you know, the people in the pews, you know, that you have to have something to say to them at the end of the day, and that's what the, that's what the vocation is. And I, you know, no, you know, Tom Amira or Catherine Lacuna never sat me down and gave me that lecture, right? That you right. must go do likewise. But it was always just abundantly Absorbed. clear, yeah. right? You know, and as we studied historical figures, as we studied 20th century figures, right, that was just always the implicit frame. So I'm very thankful for that. So that that's the first part of the story. How, sure. how I got to Notre Dame. Uh, do you? How do you? Or or do you, or do you, how do you in conscious or unconscious ways think you? Am, impart that to the students you have now the way i hope i do it and i'm 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 often doubtful that this is communicated well enough but i always try to undertake theology in media res uh so uh you know the my book on consumer culture is you know attempting to understand what commodification does to us to get a better analysis of what the actual problems are we are that we face are Mm -hmm to avoid a sort of premature theologization, right, to, to begin by, you know, saying, well, this must be modernity's, uh, you know, endless manufacture of the self, or this must be defective desire, or this must be a defective anthropology, but to just really look at materially how that forms us, and then try to come up with a response from the tradition. What resources do we have in the tradition, theological, practical, liturgical, spirituality, symbolic, to respond to these kinds of problems? So that's what I always think I'm doing in, in undergraduate classrooms and in seminars, that you know, looking at contemporary problems, trying to understand their, 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 their full scope of their challenge, mm-hmm. and, and, and then try to respond. A lot of it remains in, in, in media res uh, much longer than I would like, uh, and I think sometimes students are, are frustrated by that deferral. The, the model I use, I, I think you know, if there's, there are many books that have influenced me, but, but Chenu's Theology in the 12th Century, uh, the, the translation, right, Nature, God, and Man in the 12th Century, the, the opening chapters of that, which, which account for the emergence of, you know, the, the whole book's pointing towards Aquinas and high scholasticism, but it, it takes you through the 12th century as, you know, generations of scholars are doing the best they can with this, with this broad cultural historical shift, this you know, waking from a uh, platonic symbolic world into a, a world where nature can, can be seen and it's a self where all these nascent technologies begin to take off, uh, where, you know, trade and scholarship begin to explode. They're trying their best to make sense of the world, to take nature seriously. They're wrestling with relatively inadequate tools. They, they mostly have sections of the Timaeus, right? And, and that actually doesn't take you really far for an adequate, <laughs> adequate Christian understanding of nature and creation, but they do the best they can with that, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I love about those first two chapters is he, it's not that they got it wrong, right? It's that each generation just did the best they could with what they had, and collectively, right, the mm-hmm. church and theologians bring about what, you know, so you sort of feel like it's, it's all pointing to Aquinas, right? right. But, 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 but Albert and Aquinas don't come out of nowhere. They come mm-hmm. out of this century's ferment, and, and the Aristotelian synthesis that, that, that Thomas will eventually offer, you know, builds upon all that work. And so it's not simply a matter of, you know, at the end of the day or the end of the seminar, you have to have the answer, but we're doing this together as a generation, mm-hmm. and, and our generation faces new problems, and we all have to, as theologians, do our part to push this forward just a little bit more. And there's something about learning the practices of how to think that way that is really what you can accomplish in terms of learning, I mean, learning really well what what tools we have available to us now Mm -hmm. and learning better ways of using them to try to uh, investigate the current cultural context, investigate the current situation that we face, right? Like that's at least part of what you can achieve 
even if that still leaves some kind of satisfactory response deferred until later, right? Yes, yeah. yes. So the goal is always, right? So, yeah, so, so the turn to various critical theories, the turn to various forms of so- social and cultural analysis, that takes a lot of work, right? It takes a lot of time. Uh, and it, it impresses me how hard it is to think through these changes. So the one issue that I, I you know, as, I, as the opening story said, I've been wrestling with neoliberalism since I was 13 years old, you know, and, and I didn't call it that. I don't, I don't hear that very often, yeah, but... Uh. Yeah, um, but I, I grew up in a world where, where you know, the, the Fordist equilibrium of, you know, this cooperation between labor, capital, and state was coming apart at the mm-hmm. seams. Which be, and and I, I now understand, in, retro, in retrospect, it entered into a crisis, and then there was an ideological program to push it over the cliff. Mm-hmm. And so I... It's 35 years later, and still trying to come to terms with this new power structure that does not present itself as an imposition, but always presents itself as, as freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and always presents what it does as as inevitable and leaving open options for those for its mm-hmm. victims. So there's something good in the fact that there were not National Guard troops marching in the streets of Pittsburgh in the late 70s and the early 80s like there were in Central America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was you know it was a revolution nonetheless. You know these people were handed pink slips and it was inevitable and the factories were closed and that that way of life was done and what could you say about it? Yeah. So I I. As I said, 35 years later, um, and, and having thought about this really uh, intensively for at least 20 of those, still trying to come to terms with with how the world we live in works, and how we can continue to to be a church and and to practice Christian discipleship in this changed world, mm-hmm. and not fall into the the easy comforts of familiar opponents and familiar power structures that the previous generations mm-hmm. knew how to engage, or at least they thought they did. Yeah. Right. So there's always, there's always the temptation of, of reducing it to some older form of state imposition of sovereign power that doesn't describe where we actually are today. Yeah. Or it's often uh, sort of echoing something you encountered with students you've had, I've had with students I have where like, I teach a lot of ethics classes and for students, there's such a focus on, individual freedom and choice and control all of which are valuable to think about and reflect on and to mm-hmm. some extent they're real but they're they're not the sole determinants of our existence mm-hmm. and the, when when students start to be presented with i mean even talking about like race like there's this kind of structural systemic racism that is not reducible to so and so just hates other people mm-hmm. right there there's underlying currents that sort of co-determine our freedom and agency and, and the co-determine others' freedom and agency, that starting to recognize those systemic currents is extremely difficult. And, and, and in a way, I think very unsatisfying for our students too because mm-hmm. they still want to have control. And I think your point about kind of the anxiety of like providing for the family or mm-hmm. uh, especially with undergraduates, I have spent X amount of money to get this degree. I need to be able to pay that off and yes. still survive. Mm-hmm. It, uh, yeah, the, the sort of systemic angle can kind of fall on deaf ears for that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I think student loans are the perfect example of this neoliberal disciplining because, it, you know, when I was going to college, I did not receive substantial grants, right? But, the, but the, that was how we did financial aid, right? You know, needy students received grants. Now, I received many, many more loans than grants, but at that point, the, 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 the borrowing limit was like almost ten five or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so th- this, is, this is precisely the kind of way in which neoliberalism disciplines us. It, it says to students, well, you can invest in yourself, right? And, and here are the risks you face, and here are the options you have. You get mm-hmm. to pick one, and you get to decide how much, you know, you're going to roll the dice and how much you're going to bet, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if, if you want to go to an expensive, more elite private college, university, you know, and you want to risk 80, 100 grand on that, go for it, right? That's completely your choice. And what doesn't appear then Right, is that we remade the job market in a way where we, you know, we were not interested in, in, in many of the skills uh, that were central to citizenship and participation in society in the past. Right, mm-hmm. so so I, I've you know, students who are history majors and and they act as if they've made the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, you know I chose history. I I should have done finance. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm a junior. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Law school doesn't work anymore, and. Th- 
the discipline works because it, it makes it there's nowhere where it appears that you know as a society we, we we've we've systematically said we don't want the humanities anymore and and, mm-hmm. and we think you know people who can make extremely short-term financial decisions that, that generate profits like that's that's mm-hmm. the best thing possible. Sure. Um, I mean, even the language of invest in yourself is yes. just self-commodification. Exactly, right? And so it appears to them as it was, it's completely their choice, you know, and they, and they can borrow as much as they want, and they're on the hook for the results, right? And the fact that society has fundamentally changed, that the job market has fundamentally changed, you know, secure employment. You know, there were generations who just graduated from college and just went and got jobs and were rich, mm-hmm. right? You know, so my... My parents' generation, my uncles, you know, who did that, they were fundamentally different than the rest of the family, right? Mm-hmm. What's the difference between him and him? Well, he went to college, so he drives a, an Oldsmobile, you know, um, <laughs> and has shag carpet, and they got a pool in the back. Um, uh, you know, is he particularly brighter? Is, is you know, is, is he particularly, you know, a high-achieving member of his profession? No, it just, mm-hmm. he just got different kinds of jobs, you know, and you show up and you got a job. And so, we, you know, we, we hide all of that under personal choice. So, so many of the social structures just don't appear to us in the same way anymore. And I think across issues, we have to find ways in which traditionally socially enforced, institutionally enforced forms of, impre- of oppression are, are systematically dissolved and hidden within choice. So, uh, but that's a long digression on that, that particular analysis. But I think, you know, that's, as a theologian, what I'm trying to do is so then in a situation like that where all communities are rendered voluntaristic mm-hmm. and we understand belonging to be primarily a matter of choice, and it's mm-hmm. very, very hard for us to imagine it as any other thing, how do you be a church then? Mm. You know, Because the trap is, yeah, if you want to witness, if you, if you want to be in an intense kind of community that's, uh, that, that, that's interclass or interracial, knock yourself out. You, know, there's, there's, you can drive down here to this one, and they do that there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this one... Doesn't this is the this is the suburban homogeneity, you know? right? And no one's your neighbors aren't going to shake their fists at you for going, yeah. right? It's I mean, just, you choose a parish. You choose right? a parish, yeah. right? And, and 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 the whole thing gets rendered all the way down by freedom and choice. And so the kinds of obligations we have that, that the ecclesia is disappear. You know, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, as as the cultural wars go through and sort everything out, the deeper kinds of ecclesial connections and commitments we have where we can understand that you know simply being together in the liturgy is is a kind of of relationship which transcends whether we agree or disagree mm-hmm. with one another whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable with one another there's simply a value of being together in the liturgy you know the eucharistic prayer drawing us all into the paschal mystery that no one walks in and says you can't do that anymore Right. No one walks in and says you can't be the church can't be Catholic anymore. Right. You know, there there are no National Guard troops. You know, no one shot at the pulpit for preaching unity. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just all reworked from below. And so, how do we respond to that? We have dreams of what Eucharistic theology can do. We have dreams of what the church can be. But how specifically to practice it in this new context, where the structuring powers are always hidden in choice and freedom. That so that's the theological question that I wrestle with daily. Um. <laughs> it seems like it weighs on you. Do you have kind of a, any kind of initial or like prolegomena to a response to that? Or is that still where you sort of are, well, are, are I'll, wrestling? I'll say two things. So, so the, the, the answer in consuming religion, the last chapter, which is unsatisfactory to a lot of folks, understandably so, a tactical response, presumes a largely functioning tradition with a decent amount of identity and a, and a rather strongly understood, reflexively understood repertoire of practices. And so I still think that that's a legitimate answer. I think we need to uh, really be chastened in our desires for, you know, imagining total revolution because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, structural change is deeply necessary and not particularly forthcoming. So, yeah. you know, in, in the interim, there are things we can do. It's and slow to realize. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, Sertot's great insight about tactics there, I think it remains enormously valuable. So, but since then, I've been trying to bu- write a book on globalization, on the globalization we have, which is a neoliberal form of globalization. There are many possible alternatives to that, but we have spent the past 40 years now building a, a neoliberal globe. What that new construction of space where we, you know, through our consumption, I do things that I can never see. You know, I'm, I'm wearing socks, and I did something in North Carolina or Indonesia, and I'll never see what that was. Mm-hmm. And then through mediation, we see things that we can't do anything about. 
I, you know, I often offer this image of sort of the severing of the, of the moral corpus callosum, right? So the hands go off and do things, and the eyes see things, and neither one knows what the other one's doing, mm-hmm. right? So in this new space, I've been trying to think about you know, what that does to our, to, a, to our moral imagination, or to our moral – the functioning of our moral agency, which, is, which was designed in a world like that of the Good Samaritan, right? Mm-hmm. We evolved in that world and, 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 and religiously and theologically described in that world where, where obligation and agency coincide. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm walking down the road, and someone's beat up by the side of the road. I encounter this person, and I can do – something about it so it becomes you know it's a moral obligation to me what do i do in a world where you know i turn on the tv as i did uh you know with the the great tsunami you know and see a child standing in the ruins of his village in um, indonesia and the village is gone and it's a three-year-old child well if i was in the same moral space i would you know and, and most people would anybody i know would right you'd take that child in right Immediately, you'd take care of them. If it took one year, if it took twenty years, you'd, that child would not stay in the street, right? So I see that child. Mm-hmm. I can't help that child. Yeah, I can do it in a mediated way, right? I can I can send money, money to, to the Red CRS, Red Cross. Yeah. yeah, I can empty my retirement account. I can empty my children's college accounts, but I can never ever like really know that I've helped that child. And that, mm-hmm. that does something to us. What does this kind of globally distanced and 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 technologically mediated hyper construction of choice due to community, due to mm-hmm. church and things, problems we just talked about a minute ago. You know, what becomes of ecclesiology there? So those are the questions I've been trying to answer in a book on globalization for 10 years now, but always reaching for a theological hook. You know, so I have a number of you know, things that I think are insightful analyses to offer, but what's theological about this? In Consuming Religion, it was, uh, you know, re- it was, it was kind of easy. Uh, religions have beliefs that they want to act upon and and this is a culture that makes them particularly confused about the relationship of the two mm-hmm. so that analysis helps us understand that misunderstanding and then we can begin to respond to it but in globalization that none of the terms are, are, are there are no theologically neutral terms right so there's there's no neutral understanding of community right there's no neutral understanding of moral agency so what i've come up with just in the past couple months that finally looks like a hook to me and it seems to me someone must have said this before, so I, 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 I offer it with that caveat. It, it, it strikes me that the first chapter of Lumen Gentium, which describes the church as the sacrament of the unity of humankind in God, and that whole portrayal of the church as a sacrament of unity in Lumen Gentium, uh, is connected deeply to the various invocations of solidarity in Gaudium et Spes. Mm-hmm. And this... This is this is a form of you know the debates about whether communio is in there and and whether communio as is presented is really mm-hmm. sure honest to what's in the text but but this focus on relationship and communion and unity which is you know undeniably present across the text of Vatican II the, this sacrament of unity idea provides I think finally a hook for the book that where you have both a, a measure. Uh, an evaluative, a, a diagnostic measure, which is you look at social structures, you look at economic relationships, you look at the treaties that produce these things, you look at the technologies of, of social media and, and, and various kinds of mediation, and you ask the question, what sort of depth of relationship does this allow? Mm-hmm. And you ask that as a religious question in that what God's salvation is doing in the world is bringing us all into unity in Christ, right? It's bringing us into communion. And so that has consequences for what's going on in history. And so as we change history, which, which, we, which we're doing profoundly, right, as we debate trade agreements, um, as we invent new algorithms for social media, uh, you know, as, as we decide how we'll live alone or together, we're always interrogating them from the perspective of what level of of communion does this allow mm-hmm. right and so from that perspective it seems to me that it's it's useful to say well here's a global economy that you know lets me have fruit from any continent tomorrow yeah but it doesn't let i it makes it very very hard and almost impossible but you know m- vanishingly hard for me to know how i got that mm-hmm. right if i want some chocolate I can walk across the street and get all the chocolate I want. I can't know whether 10-year-olds were enslaved in Ghana to get that to me. Sure. If I want to seek out that special choice, right, and I'll pay a premium for knowing that 10-year-olds were not enslaved to get my chocolate, right, that's an option. I might be in the store here or I might have to order it online. 
but you know, it, it, it's a very shallow system of interaction. A, l- a lot of this is in very caritas in veritate that you know that economic relationships need to be conceived of as moral, in, in, uh, intrinsically moral mm-hmm. acts, and anything that 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 assumes that they you know some sort of invisible hand, pure market logic guarantees that they're moral is is simply yeah. inadequate. You know, and all of this forces towards like a, a Catholic eye about communion. You know, so the way I live, the way my neighborhood works, where I live, the way I commute, the way I relate to the, my coworkers, you know, my choice about going on social media, choosing this one over that one, you know, my choice about, you know, uh, how I consume things. All of those are choices about relationships, too. So it provides a measure, uh, you know, a Catholic sensibility, an eye towards communion that's rooted, I think, in the Trinity and the Paschal Mystery. You know, so it, it becomes religiously offensive, spiritually unsatisfying, disquieting that, you know, I, people make my underwear and I have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this? You know, I can't make underwear. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and most of it's made in sweatshops, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, I could, you know, I can seek out fair trade, just just made underwear, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, but just the fact that, you know, the basic elements of our lives are supplied for us and hidden behind a commodity veil and we never see the people who keep us alive. And so, they, so that to segue into the solidarity question, you know, John Paul II's great argument in Solicitudo Re Socialis that solidarity is, um, is is a fact, a principle, and a virtue, and all of them are based on the fact of interdependence, right? Yeah. You know, so the social virtue is 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 a responsibility, an, an imagination that can see, and 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 the strength of will to respond to our interconnections, mm-hmm. right? With this with this eye for relationship, this eye for social, the social dimensions of charity. But what's brilliant about his analysis, right? It's based on the fact of interdependence. Mm-hmm. The problem is we live in a world where that fact is systematically hidden from us, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that it simply wasn't for my grandparents' generation. I mean, they right. they, they had pretty broad commodity chains too but they lived near factories they knew where stuff came from you know they you know, they, you know they they went to butchers who cut their meat right, right. it did not come from a, a massive factory in in Kansas you know where mm-hmm. 8000 undocumented workers are, are you know working in, in, in a cold production line all of this stuff you know was much closer because the 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 scale of 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 transportation and logistics was 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 much smaller so we're in a, the situation we face is the connections are hidden from us, which is not acceptable from the eyes of communion, and that then then that deprives us of this fundamental self-understanding of our interconnection that that is the basis, as John Paul II understood, for acting in solidarity, right? So solidarity now becomes sort of an artificial thing, right? And we're constantly talking about the people we don't pay attention to and we mm-hmm. should pay attention to them. Well, we're connected to them. And it's it's simply not our fault that we don't know about them. Mm-hmm. Right. There are social orders where it would be our fault. You know, if I was a slaveholder uh, in, 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 in you know, antebellum America, right, I'm responsible for that. Right. right? I see what I'm doing. And there are, you know, 10,000 layers of, of denial and, 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 you know, moral self-deception that people are able to summon. Right. But in our system, you know, I rely on slaves, too. But I just I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I have to go looking and, mm-hmm. and, and try to find it. So so this sacrament of unity and the importance of connection and the sense of interconnection being the basis for our imagination of solidarity that all appears as a very powerful diagnostic lens and then it also gives us a, a prescription to come to all these things right mm-hmm. so when we're thinking about trade agreements you know we're writing the constitution of, of of a society there right and so do we really want a society where where things like slavery can be hidden or is that a fundamental thing that needs to be built into these logics, right? And and and, and so the the claim that you know uh, the market will simply take care of that that's not true. And right. so we can't write these agreements without having some. Now I don't have the answer, right? But that's what we have to look for. We have mm-hmm. to push for. So show me how you can make this economic relationship into a true relationship of of, of real moral mutuality. Yeah. You know, because I because I'm all for that, right? Mm-hmm. And but we have to get the details. Uh, you know, we we can we can bemoan social media and its shallowness and all its other problems, right? But a lot of that's just cooked into the algorithms, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, you know, when I, when I signed up for Twitter, you know, it suggested uh, 10 people that I might want to follow. And they were, they were, it was pretty good, you know, the, uh, people who had either uploaded their email 
catalogs or who had maybe searched for me or something at some point. <laughs> you know, we actually, see, curiously, it suggested one of my cousins. I have 14 cousins, and it suggested one. Um, and he's the one whose politics are most closely aligned with mine, and mm-hmm. I hadn't talked to him for 10 years. And hmm. I didn't have his email. He didn't have mine. But Twitter also knows my IP, and it knows who my neighbors are, and it knows what my zip code is, and it knows that people in my zip code tend not to talk to people in this other zip code. Right. You know, so Twitter, Facebook could do that. You know, the, the kind of filtering that the Google is doing on searches, and they're tweaking that again, but, you know, to, to, to give me results that are based on past choices I've made among results, like the kind of thing I want, you know, Google could just as easily say, well, let's mix it up, right? Here are the kinds of things that you tend not to read, and yeah. maybe you ought to. Uh, so, the, so it gives us something to go to these algorithms, to go to these trade agreements, to go, you know, to go to political decisions and say, how does this bring us into deeper communion with one another? You know, that doesn't give us it doesn't give us the answer. It doesn't give us the algorithm. Right. It doesn't give us language for a trade agreement, but it gives us a place to look where this matters, too. And we need to build that in there. It gives you a criterion that you need to consider. Yes. Yeah. You know, and you can be constructive then. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not simply a matter of of bemoaning social media or a global economy. Right. The global economy could be different. We could write the rules differently. Sure. Um, You know, and I don't pretend that that would be easy. And I and I and I would challenge anyone who suggests that what we've done over the past 40 years has, has been entirely beneficial or easy, right? Yeah. So let's, let's argue about the details. But it gives us, it gives us a, a criterion and a telos that we can always try to realize in these, in these, very, prof- these very significant decisions we're making about the safe, shape of social life through technology and, 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 and politics and economics. So I think I might have a hook for the book. And so there might, there, yeah. I might actually finish the second book now. So, <laughs> I um, mean, in a sense, what you're talking about is the common good, right? As a, as an aspect of communion, right? Yes. So, but, the, but is that is that a sort of derivative notion of what you understand by communion, or no? I, I would say that yeah. So there there is there is the political social common good, which we, which which is easier to deal with on smaller scales, right? Right. And so we found a way that was imperfect, mm-hmm. radically imperfect in 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 the mid 20th century. You know, with with social democracy, with with the New Deal, with with Fordism, we found a way to scale that radically imperfectly to the national scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the biggest stories of the 20th century is the Civil Rights Movement because uh, African Americans were not let into that deal; they were mm-hmm. systematically excluded through through policy means. Right. Right. Uh, you know, elements of the New Deal did you know were systematically tailored to not not address professions that African Americans were concentrated in, but. But we had a constitutional and political system where the civil rights movement can happen, mm-hmm. right? And where and where very very significant minority populations could could fight for their rights, and 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 that system was effective, right? But we had we had a way of scaling imperfectly the common good to two hundred million, mm-hmm. uh, which is no no mean feat, right? Yeah, yeah. The problem with globalization, and, and Benedict, you know, very insightfully said this in and Caritas and Veritate, is the, the global economy escapes the political regulation of, of national-scale governments, mm-hmm. right? So you now have an economy that's bigger than the governments, and you can no longer yoke the market to the common good in that social democracy, Keynesian, New Deal way. Sure. And so, yeah, it is a question of the common good, but it's a question of the, of the common good as we're, ch- as we're constantly changing the structures uh, and scale on which it operates. And so, yeah, so, so the outcome... I very much want is is a global common good, right? And which is something that w- would have been hard to imagine fifty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, so so curiously, you know, precisely fifty years ago or fifty five years ago, the church begins to talk precisely about the international common good and the mm-hmm. common good between nations. You know, as as colonialism is ending and 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 the and the the injustices done to the two thirds world are becoming manifest, and 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 the need to take those things seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. That that's all happening. They already saw that happening you know, in, in the early 60s. But we've, we've gone on to, to build massively influential structures since then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've allowed people to say that, well, the market alone will take care of that to, to win the day. Um, so maybe one question that I have that, that comes from sort of this, this grand sort of set of questions and visions are when, when you think about sort of like the, the theologians that we're training now mm-hmm. and, and sort of sending out in this world to teach at all levels to, to do research and, and, and so forth. What, I, I don't know, I guess advice or direction do you give for younger theologians who are, who are facing this very complex and implicated world into which we will be working? Does that question make sense? I don't know. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I guess the number one piece of advice I would give is it's, you know, it's on your shoulders now. There's, 
you know, there's much to be learned from your mentors who grew up in a different world, mm-hmm. just as I learned so much from my mentors who grew up in a fundamentally different world than I did. But also, to, you know, to to try very hard to see what you know, the native knowledge that you have, mm-hmm. and, and and bring the, the bring the theological tradition to bear on that. I think I think the breadth of the tradition is always relevant. I would I would. I guess this comes as a surprise from what I said, but and what you know of me, um, I would offer caution about accepting the diagnoses of of how the world works mm. and what's wrong with it from from earlier generations. You have much to learn from them, and mm-hmm. and those diagnoses may still very much be true. But but the world changes so fast now. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was, I was struck by once at Georgetown, I was teaching a junior class on globalization in the aughts. I think, yeah, it must have been. And uh, I, I asked them, I said, well, tell me about Facebook. And the, it was juniors and seniors, and they all looked at me, and they said, well, we don't use Facebook. Freshmen use Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'm, I'm so screwed. Right? Because, because, because <laughs> the whole day worked out on it? Well, no, it's just like I, I used to think that there was about a 10-year generation, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, there were, there, were, there were television shows and musical and cultural movements, you know, and styles and, and political debates. And yeah. so you kind of – you could kind of keep using that for 10 years, you know, and you, you could feel it was fading. Like people, you know, wouldn't respond. They'd look at you weird when you mentioned Seinfeld at a certain point, right, or, or cheers. <laughs> but, but then, I, you know, when I realized that it was now two years, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's just hard work. It was over quickly. Yeah. So that's one thing I would say is, just, you know, just allow yourself. We, we can't presume we know how the culture we live in works because I, I, I confess I still haven't figured it out after thinking about it for 30 years. But allow yourself to know the difference that you know, mm-hmm. you know, and, and bring your theological training to bear on that. And, and so, yeah, you know, learn, learn a lot of good theology, but be suspicious of our construals of the problems and the mm-hmm. answers that, you know, that work on the level of social analysis. And the other thing I would say is uh, related to that anecdote is it just seems to me that culture is becoming increasingly fragmented and it's harder to find a zeitgeist that that can be named in mm-hmm. in, in aesthetic cultural works of art and in and, and film and in music right it's it's harder to find some shared yeah. common life there I, th- I i suspect this is i would offer this as a conjecture that it uh, it's the zeitgeist is more and more involved in the algorithms of the of the social media through which we interact with one another mm-hmm. than it is in any particular content, mm. right? Uh, so, you know, so my children watch... The organizing method, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so, like, my children watch things on YouTube that with maybe 12 million other people, right? And there's 290 million other people who've never heard of that whatsoever, mm-hmm. right? There's there's nothing like the Brady Bunch for them, right? you know? And, uh, and they're... Well, you know, the, the, the recommended video the promoted video thing on the front page of, of YouTube you know may provide some kind of commonality but after you watch for a while it begins to tailor it to your kind of person right mm-hmm. so that fragmentation I think is, is is going to be a challenge to to theology over the next decade because the kinds of even if you're not a even if you're not a full-blooded correlation theologian right the kinds of just basic cultural inertia or or, or, or background that we take for granted I think is it's going to be harder and harder to find, mm-hmm. but it might be found in those forms. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. As we kind of start to wrap up here, we have some less serious questions for you, okay. which I, ho- I hope you'll enjoy. Um, this is, we always end with a five-question questionnaire. Mm-hmm. So, one, what is your favorite biblical name? <laughs> um, I've always liked the sound of Zachariah. I don't know. <laughs> Yeshua. Um, I I keep hoping someone's gonna say Habakkuk, but uh, yeah, <laughs> Habakkuk's a lot of fun to say. There's such a wealth, you know, yeah, yeah of, of different different names. What Nimrod is a good one. So. Yeah, it's a great insult too. What is your favorite, or if if you prefer, least favorite liturgical song? <laughs> um, I want to make a plea for Kumbaya. <laughs> it's gotten a bad rap you know? it's unfairly targeted i mean it's it's sincere and i felt that as a kid and i don't want to go back and make fun of that at all <laughs> right so i 
I mean, I'm happy with making fun of bell bottoms and felt butterflies, but that was there was a whole effect. There's earnestness. To there it. was a whole effective formation of carry toss in there that I think nobody should ever mock. All right. Of whom or what would you be the patron saint? <laughs> Is procrastination taken? Of the anxious warriors. That's fair. Of those struggling for hope. All right. So. That's lovely. What had you, had you not gone the theology track as you did, what other profession do you think you would have liked to enjoy? Like, would you have stuck with engineering, do you think, or... Do you like to imagine you would have done something entirely different? I think something that I would have enjoyed. I would have enjoyed being a artisan woodworker in a in a artisanal art town sometime in the past <laughs> twenty years. Oh, so. Like like the furniture making or carving or furniture making, bull turning, looking at wood, making, yeah. finding beautiful things in it. That yeah. I would I would happily do that if if I wasn't worried about. <laughs> the future liberal globalization yeah 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 all right fair enough and uh what would you what would be the title of your biography (laughs) or autobiography if you wanted to write it yourself i i don't know wow that's a i'm working on it it's a good title It's both a title and a response to, yeah. the, to the press as they inquire. <laughs> it gives you room for a sequel, too, if you, <laughs> if you really want. <laughs> well, Vince, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Um, thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 